Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, this week we're going to be looking at a new doctrine, and this is an answer to the question, how can Jesus' death pay for my sin? How does that work exactly? And so that's going to involve the doctrine of the atonement, but more specifically an aspect of the atonement known as penal substitution. Now, there is a lot here to cover with a doctrine like this, and I'm just going to put the disclaimer out right now that in three short episodes, we are not going to cover everything that there is to talk about. But my goal is to give you a solid overview so that you have a foundation, a scriptural foundation, to do some more research and digging on your own. I want to demonstrate to you that this is a very scripturally based and backed doctrine because it is under significant attack. So what is the doctrine of penal substitution? Well, in a nutshell, it is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul gives us a a pretty good overview of how this works. Now, there's a lot to cover there, but I want to focus in first on this word propitiation that happens in verse 25. This is the Greek word hilasterion, and it occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and where we find it is in Hebrews 9.5, and there it is translated not as propitiation, but as mercy seat. Now, if you know your Old Testament and the Levitical system, that should perk up your ears a little bit because the mercy seat was another name for the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a place where blood was sprinkled, where sacrificial substitutionary atonement took place. So this idea of Jesus being a propitiation is tied directly back into Old Testament sacrificial thinking, not only in terms of blood sacrifice, but also substitution and atonement. Now in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul picks up on this when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the idea being communicated here is that our sin was imputed to Christ. That doesn't mean that Christ actually became sinful. What it means is that he was treated as if he were guilty. This is a judicial term for what we would call in modern terms a legal fiction. And I want to take you to another passage that discusses this as well so we can see a little bit more of the detail. In Colossians 2.14, Paul writes, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I want us to see that tied up in this doctrine of penal substitution, there are judicial concepts and there is 
a legal sense in which we need to be thinking about all of this if we are to accurately understand it in its fullness. So my sin and our sins and all the sin in the world is imputed to Jesus, legally speaking, so that even though he is actually not guilty of any sin, he is treated as if he were guilty. But the Bible doesn't stop there. Christ's righteousness is also imputed to believers so that Christians are treated as if we are righteous with Christ's own righteousness. I want to go back to our passage in Romans for just a moment, and I want to read the last verse of our passage, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what does it mean for God to be both just and the justifier simultaneously? Well, it has to do with this concept that we find all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, specifically in verses 6 and 7. Let me read them to you here. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the question that should obviously pop up is, in a passage like Exodus 34, 6, and 7, how in the world is God able to say that he is faithful and that he has steadfast love and that he's slow to anger, that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but then in the very next phrase, that he will by no means clear the guilty? Well, who else would have sin except the guilty? So how is God able to, to say that he can forgive sin, and yet that he will not let sin pass. It seems like he would have to pick one or the other. And this is the same idea that's being communicated in Romans 3, 26, that through Jesus, by imputing our sin to Jesus, God is just. Sin is punished. And yet he's also able to forgive us who rightly deserve that punishment because our punishment was taken by someone else. And so God is just because he has rightly punished sin and he has maintained his holy nature. And God is also merciful and able to justify those who were sinners at the same time. And that's an amazing thought. I want to take you to just a couple more passages in our time together today. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this peace that we have with God, this reconciliation, is only through the blood of Jesus. It's only through his death and his sacrifice that we are able to have peace with God, which means that Jesus' blood is the means of our reconciliation, or at least the possibility of it, if we choose to believe in him. And that Jesus, and only Jesus, was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.7, To cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is once again tied into this idea of an Old Testament Passover substitutionary sacrifice. One more passage, 1 Peter 1.19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Once again, this tie right back into the Old Testament need for sacrifice, and the New Testament writers associate Jesus as being the ultimate or perfect sacrifice. And next time on Wednesday's episode, we're going to look at that question of why exactly was Jesus's sacrifice different? How did it differ from Old Testament sacrifices and what made it unique? 